Well, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be my? Could you be my neighbor? Pretty bad singing. But many of you knew that because you know that Rollins' own alumnus for 25 years, Fred Rogers, by the way, a Presbyterian minister, we don't always claim that, would tell us what it meant to be a neighbor. I mean, for 25 years, starting in 1968, that cardigan-clad man would come on the TV with the lowest budget of ever a TV program they ever had, And come out with that goofy jingle of won't you be my neighbor. How many of us have watched at least one episode? Wow. Feels like we're in a club. I feel good admitting it. My name's Jeff Jakes. I watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. (laughs) But long before Mr. Rogers in 1968 started his 25-year run on PBS telling us what it's like to be a neighbor or who is our neighbor. Luke, the Gospel writer of God's Holy Word, told us what it's like to be a neighbor. So today, as we turn to God's Word, we're going to be asking and answering the question, who is my neighbor? And how do we become good neighbors to one another. So turn with me in God's holy word. We're going to look to Luke chapter 10 and say, will you be my, could you be my neighbor? But more importantly, to hear God ask us, would you be my neighbor? We're going to look to Luke 10 verses um, uh, 25 through 37. I'll be reading out of the Uh, English Standard Version. Let's be mindful. This is God's holy word. Originally, when it was originally given to us, without error will not lead us astray. What a great love letter God has given to us. My brothers and sisters, hear God's word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. 
He went to him and bound his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, or two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you for the wisdom of your son, Jesus. When asked bogus questions, pointed us to truth. So Father, we ask that you would send the Spirit of the living God into this room so that we can hear the wisdom of Christ again this morning. What is very clear is that my opinion doesn't matter. My words are nothing apart from the power of the Gospel. So Father, would You do that which only You do and send the Spirit of Jesus into this room through the preaching of Your Word? And would You give us ears to hear from Your Son, our Savior? Spirit of the living God, would You illumine our minds? Would You shine so brightly and intently into the darkness of our minds that we can understand a familiar story? So we can understand what You really want us to know so that we can truly become a good neighbor to You and to others around us. Father, would You take our hearts and would You lovingly, in Your Son's nail-pierced hands, would You crush them in a way that the unbelief and the stoniness of sin is broken apart and our hearts can beat for Jesus. And Father, because we're Your people and You love us and we're Your church, would would You empower our feet so that we walk out of here in a manner worthy of the Gospel as good neighbors who get it because You've come and You've rescued us and You've loved us. Father, we pray that anything that I say that is wrong or merely my opinion, may it fall away and be forgotten. But what is true and what contains the good news of the Gospel, would You use those things to make us more like Jesus, our Savior and Your Son. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The story is a familiar one to many of us. We know the story of the Good Samaritan. You've heard it. I don't think you have to be in church circles to hear a story of the Good Samaritan. So here we have it today in front of us asking and answering the question, Who is my neighbor? But we have to begin by seeing how this story is set up. How did Jesus lead into the Good Samaritan story? Well, it begins, the setup is this, it begins with a religious teacher. It begins with a lawyer, a lawyer that knew God's law, the Torah, knew God's law, was an expert of the law, and he's going to stand up and he's going to ask two disingenuous, self-seeking questions. On the surface, these questions look pretty good. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
The second self-serving question he asks is, who is my neighbor? You see, he asked the first question. It seems like a great question. And you with Jesus, why not ask him the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But as we read God's word, it begins showing this man's heart. Why was he asking Jesus, calling him teacher, this question? He was testing him. He wasn't worshiping him. He wasn't loving him. He wasn't submitting to him. He wasn't ascribing to him what was due to him. He was testing Jesus. He was using Christian language to ask a fairly orthodox question to test Jesus. And then he asked this, well, who's my neighbor? Why did he ask that? Why know why? He wanted to justify himself. He wanted to make sure that he looked good to the crowd and he looked good to God. You know what he's asking when he says, who's my neighbor? You ready for this? And we'll get more into this in a few moments. He's asking, who do I have to love? Tell me. Mark them up for me because there's a lot of people out there I don't really care about. There's a lot of people I don't really love. So what do we see with this man? We're going to see a few things that God's Word gives us. The first one is this. You want to follow along in an outline in the bulletin? It's there. It's this. Knowing without understanding. Knowing without understanding. Verses 25 through 28. This certain lawyer, this expert in the law, well, he certainly knew something about Jesus. He knew something about his teaching that would lead him here and would ask this kind of question. This teacher of the law, this is a religious person. I mean, this is someone who has a good education. He certainly knew something about God's Word. Because, as a matter of fact, he's going to quote it. He's going to quote the greatest commandment. So this really, for those of us who are in the church, for those of us who are religious, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, we immediately should be tuning in our ears to this because here is a religious person that seemingly has knowledge but does not have understanding. Where do you go awry? Well, what do you call Jesus? What do you call him? What do you call him? Teacher. There wasn't Savior there. There wasn't Lord there. There wasn't Son of God there. It was simply a term. It wasn't even rabbi. It's just basically teacher, learned one, not bowing down to him. And listen, if he knew who Jesus was, if that knowledge led him to a right understanding, you don't test God. He would come into Jesus' presence as the creator of the heavens and the earth and the only savior of sinners. And you don't test Him. You bow before Him. And you open yourself up and you say, speak words of life and truth so that I may live. Show mercy, O God. But no, this one who had religion was going to be above Jesus. And he was going to test. You don't test him, you submit to him. It's interesting, I love the, the triad that uh, C.S. Lewis uses to describe Jesus. Because a lot of people will tell you that, yeah, Jesus existed and he was a great teacher. He was a great prophet. I mean, most of the world religions will at least acknowledge the fact that Jesus existed. You can't write a check out and not put the date and at least acknowledge that there was a man named Jesus. 
And anyone who has any insight or intellect is going to agree that he certainly, in the least, was a great teacher. Look at the room today under his teaching. But Lewis rightly said is that we have to look at Jesus and he's one of three things. He's either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's Lord. But he can't be multiple of those things. Why? Because Jesus came claiming to be God's unique, eternal Son. And only lunatics come and declare that they are God unless they are, right? I mean, we know the names like Jim Jones. We love to na- know the names like David Koresh. We know the names of the lunatics who have come saying, I in some way have divinity. And by the way, they can never be good teachers. They could be liars. I mean, Jesus could have come and said, you know, before Abraham was, I am. I am the great I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the prophet that, uh, that Moses promised. I am the king that is greater than David. I am the priest that is greater than Aaron. I am the one. He could have been a liar. Or he could have been Lord. And by God's grace, we know the truth. And so we got to put ourselves in this religious person's shoes or sandals and realize that he was not coming to Jesus as Lord. He thought Jesus was lunatic or liar. And he tried to expose him. How is it with our lives? How do we approach him? This man was a knowledgeable man. He knew the scriptures, but he didn't understand them. You know what he thought about God's word? He thought he'd know it, memorize it, try to live the best he could by it. And you know what he thought that God's word would do? It would justify him that he could live a life before a holy God who's sinless and separate. And somehow by living this godly life, he could justify himself and said, I've done it. I've loved the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I love my neighbor as myself. This pastor has yet to do it. I must be honest. Love the Lord my God with all of my soul, all of my strength, all of my might, all of the time. To really love my neighbor in a way where I care about your well-being, your retirement, your marriage, your children, their education, your lawn, your car, your reputation, as much as I care about mine. You see, Jesus is this great teacher who points us to the law. How does it read to you, lawyer? Oh, what great tongue-in-cheek. Any lawyer worth their salt is going to want to tell you, well, this is my interpretation, and then charge you an arm and a leg. Well, how does it read to you? And he asks, answers with orthodox. Orthodox answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says something that could be very puzzling to us. You, you know what? You go do that and you live. Is he talking about a works-based salvation? Wait a minute, what's going on here? No, the reality of the law should have crumbled him. He should have articulated the words to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And oh my God, I don't. Love my neighbor as myself. I loathe my neighbor. I covet my neighbor's wife. I want their stuff, but I don't want their reputation. Forgive me. God, you are in a sinner's sight. But he says, oh yeah, I I can do that. I want to justify myself. He seemed to use no scripture But he really didn't know it and have understanding. He should have thought back to Habakkuk. If he knew, he knew Habakkuk. 
He knew Habakkuk 2.4 that said this, that the righteous shall live by faith. He asks a bogus question. He gets it wrong right with the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What works do I have? He missed that the righteous live by faith. He missed what's more clearly given to us in the New Testament in Ephesians 2.8. It is by God's grace that we are saved. It is through faith in Christ Jesus that we're saved. Not in what we do, but in what we believe. This man had knowledge of the Scriptures and he lacked understanding. Jesus was confronted by some as He's feeding the 5,000. They said, now listen, uh, uh, what are the works that we must do of God? What are these works? In John 6, 28 and 29, Jesus says, you want to know what the works of God are? Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that He is the Son of God. That He is the only Savior. That you are standing. You are standing in the One who is the only One who is just. You are in the presence of the just and the justifier. And you're trying to justify yourself. And you think you're going to do it through the Word? This is here to break you and crush you and show you the reality that you need Jesus. The works of God are to believe that we are broken and Jesus has come to mend us. Those are the works. Do this. Love your neighbor and live. And it's amazing because guess what? He was standing next to the only one who fulfilled that. He was standing next to the only one who loved the Lord his God with all his soul, mind, and strength. He was the only one who ever loved his neighbor as himself. He was standing next to the way. He was standing next to the truth. He was standing next to the life. He was standing next to the just. He was standing next to the one and only who could justify him. And what did he want to do? He wanted to justify himself. Man, he had complete knowledge and no understanding. Scripture says that wisdom begins when we have our hearts rightly aligned with God and know who He is and know who we are. And even not only what do we do, but to inherit eternal life. And we've got to realize eternal life's not a birthright. Just because you're a Jew and you're connected to Abraham, just because you grew up Catholic or Presbyterian or Baptist, or just because your grandma or grandfather or whatever was a preacher or a missionary, let me understand. It's not a birthright. Each and every one of us must stand before the only begotten Son. This story right here should be enough for religious folks like you and me who are here to say, how is it with our hearts? Do we have knowledge of God's Word without understanding Him? How is it with you? Do you see Him rightly? We see right in the beginning, knowing without understanding. Second one is this, loving without doing. In verse 29, that certain lawyer who wanted to justify himself Standing next to Jesus, he asked this amazing question, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And what he was saying is, Lord God, you're a Jew. Jesus, I'm a Jew. Who's my neighbor? You're not going to have me love those Samaritans, are you? I'm not going to have to love those Gentiles. I know that David told us that we're all colored people in Christ. But I don't have to love someone who doesn't look like me. I don't have to love someone who doesn't smell or think or act like me, do I? I mean, you've got to be able to define this for me. Who in the world am I supposed to love? 
And really what he's saying is, who do I not have to love? Who can I just blow off that I'm superior and I'm better and somehow I don't need to waste my time? Because they're not lovable. Who's my neighbor? Define it for me. So I can have that scope narrowed of who I should love. I don't know about you. I tend to love those who love me. I tend to love those who love me. I don't know about you, but I tend to love those who look like me, think like me, act like me. I tend to like those and love those that are likable. Some of you aren't very likable. (laughs) Neither am I. You've got to love those whom God loves. You've got to love those whom God loves. We've got to have a love like His. And how about it? How is it with Jesus? You see, God loves those who don't like Him. It's pretty amazing. Listen, if He didn't, we're all in a world of trouble. If God didn't love those who didn't like Him, I mean, there would be hell for all of us, right? Because why? Because Romans 5 eight says that God demonstrates His love for us. And ready for this? That while we are still sinners, while we're enemies of His, while we, while we are blaspheming His name, when we want to be our own guys, while we are still sinners, God is demonstrating His love for us by sending Christ Jesus to rescue us and to, and to clean us up and to make us lovable But He he loved us beforehand. He loved us in our brokenness. He loved us. God so loved the world that He would send His only begotten Son. We need to be loving like He does. Love those who don't love Him. Love those who aren't like Him. Certainly God is God and we will never be God. But He has given us His image, His reflection. But by nature, it says in the Bible, but by nature we're children of wrath. By nature we're broken. By nature we're sinful. By nature we're not lovable. And God loves those who aren't like Him. And God loves those who don't like Him. But what I do know is when we get to the end of the book and when we get to the end of the story, And when we can see Him face to face, and when we're there, we no longer need to see dimly. Guess who's going to be there with us? There's going to be our brothers and sisters of every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And we're to be gathered as one, but we're not going to lose our distinctiveness. Because why? It says that there's every tribe, every tongue, every nation pulled together. And God says, I want you to love what I love. Look what I love. I love colored people of all colors. And I'm going to color them all red with the blood of Christ. Now, if you're not, weren't here last week, you might think that I've lost my mind, all right? Which I have, but that's not the point. We had Pastor Rowdy preach an amazing sermon last week on colored people that were all the color of red in Christ's blood. And that makes us one. And that makes us family. And that makes us now go love Those who are not like us. You see, we must now love the Jew. We must now love the Gentile. We must now love the male, the female, the Catholic, the Baptist, the Pentecostal, the Muslim. We have to love the Mormon. 
Now, there's a different love that we have for one another that are true brothers and sisters in Christ. And I understand that. Because God has a unique love for His family. we got to understand that as well. He certainly has a love for all of His image bearers. All of them. That's why life is sacred in the womb and at the end of life filled with Alzheimer's. God's image is sacred. God has a love for His family that is unique. But at the same time, we need to love all of them. You see, the point of the Good Samaritan story is this. Jesus wanted to make it really clear that the one who needed to be loved could not be recognized. The one who needed to be loved could not be recognized. That priest, that Levite, and that Samaritan walked down the street and they all saw the same thing. A man who was stripped, a man who was beaten, and a man who was unrecognizable. And God's saying that love should be not a discriminating love. You shouldn't be looking for the clothes, for an identity. Hey, is that somebody in my neighborhood? Is that somebody that I should be caring about? Could that be one of my brothers? Could that be somebody that I know? No, you can't recognize him. And God says, love this one. God has an undiscriminating love, praise Jesus, that includes sheep of all different sizes, colors, and shapes. We're to love him too. I mean, Jesus goes on to say even more. And we, we got to just not just love those who we can't even distinguish who they are. But he says this. We're supposed to love those who persecute us. We're supposed to love our enemies. But I love the reality that Jesus will never ask us to do something that he doesn't do himself. Did you hear what I said? Jesus is not going to ask us to do something that he's unwilling to do. Because he loved those who persecuted him. He loved those who were enemies to him. And he says, now, go and do the same. I had someone last week come and tell me, kind of with tears in their eyes, as we were fellowshipping with the Father's house after church in the fellowship hall. And they're saying, this is so an amazing moment. This is so much in my heart. He says, I grew up in a home that from Monday to Saturday we were bigots. And on Sunday we worshiped God. It just, it just it makes sense. Eventually, I couldn't take it anymore. I mean, from Monday through Saturday, we hated our brother who looked different. And on Sunday, we walk into God's house like everything is just honky-dory. And I know his story is not unique. But God says it's not supposed to be what he's supposed to be. I loved you. I made no distinction. I called those to myself from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and now go and love the same. We have seeing without feeling in verses 30 through 32. Verses 30 through 32, obviously we have a very religious person that could be identified with this lawyer, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan, a half-breed. One that immediately when this certain lawyer heard about a Samaritan, he would cringe because he was taught to hate that man. And he grew up in a household that hated that man. And that man was not to be loved and supported. And that's where he grew up with his bigoted household. And only one was able to see and have feeling. Zach Van Dyke shared a story recently about his son Oliver that I just love. Uh, his oldest Oliver is learning how to ride a bike. 
And right in front of their house is like this bike path. And so he loves to get out there. And, and now that the training wheels are off and ride his bike. And recently he and his younger brother Atticus were out on the bike path in front of their house. And Atticus has still got the training wheels on. And, and Oliver doesn't have the big brother. He's out there. He's got that freedom. Remember that feeling of just having the training wheels off? Man, is that a great feeling. And he's just out there and he's biking and I'm not sure what happened, but something happened that happens to all young boys. They saw something that needed investigation. Maybe they saw an ant pile or maybe they saw something and they needed a little more attention. So they put their bikes down right there in the bike path and they walked over and they were investigating whatever it was that caught their attention. And then pretty soon, here comes a very distinguished biker. He's got that outfit on that no man should wear on a bike. I don't care who you are and what you look like. That's just not right. He's biking along. He's got the aerodynamics going on. He's probably got his iPod in. He's got his timing all going on. And he sees in front of him that there are two kids who have left their bikes in the middle of the bike path. And oh my goodness, he's going to have to either stop and go around them or he might have to actually go on the grass. Kill his time. So he yells to the kids... It's supposed to be a bike path. And Oliver says, I know it's a bike path and it's awesome, isn't it? This is a bike path. It's great. Love it. (laughs) See, both were on the same road. Both were on the same path, but both saw completely different things. This priest and this Levite, it says very clearly, Jesus doesn't let them off the hook. He makes sure that the reader knows. He makes sure that the original listeners knew. He makes sure that we know that, listen, this man was seen. This man was seen, but only one had compassion, that half-breed. Only one bandaged him up. Only one poured out oil and wine and took his own resources on his wounds. Only one placed him on a donkey. Only one gave him to the innkeeper in two days' wages. Two days! Let that settle in. This isn't that somebody you see on the off-ramp getting off at Princeton, you want to throw a dollar to say, oh, look at me. I mean, this is someone who took time and he said, you know what? I'm going to pay more. Right out of college, I had the privilege of working in New York City. Katie and I lived in New Jersey. Every day I took a train into midtown Manhattan. Every day I walked a couple blocks to where I worked. And I tell you right now that you can very quickly identify a New Yorker. New Yorkers, as a matter of fact, New Yorkers are so easily identifiable because they blend in. Tourists are those people who are like, whoa, whoa. And, and the tourists are the ones who see the homeless and they look and they cannot believe it. And I tell you, they know, they know who to ask for and who to talk to. Anybody who makes eye contact with them, anybody who has their mouth open, anybody who has a sign on them that says, I am a tourist, come talk to me. Because I probably have a little cash. But New Yorkers put their head down. And they walk. And they walk with great pace. And they walk with great intentionality. And they know where they're going. And they know, the, well, you know what? If I look up and see, I might have to do something. If I look up and see, I might have to get involved. And I'm not going to. And it's amazing that after a few years of working in New York, this is the pace you get. And somehow, in all the religious training that priest had, and all the religious training that Levite had, that they had that New Yorker gate from Jerusalem to Jericho. They may have just been at the temple. And they didn't care, but they're going to walk and they're going to look and they're going to say, I'm not getting involved. And there's one who did. This is a bike path, they said. Clear out the way. I got business to do. 
And they missed all that's around them. And then in verses 33 through 36, we get this gospel neighboring. I don't know about you, but I love a story with a twist. I love a story that's got a great twist. Maybe a movie. Maybe a, a, a book. One of the best movies I saw with a great twist was Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense is a movie uh, that Bruce Willis stars in, um, and he is a child psychiatrist. And he's helping this young boy who uh, sees his sixth sense that he has, is that he sees dead people. And it's scary. I'm telling you, really scary. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to probably have nightmares tonight telling you the story, but it scared me to death. And, and throughout the movie, you have Bruce Willis entering in and talking with this boy and really trying to help this boy through this issue that he believes that he sees dead people and, and he's having all these dreams and these visions and Bruce Willis continually enters into his life and he's so kind and he's so loving and such a wonderful child psychologist and you're following and tracking with his story the whole time. And at the end of the story, and if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, I'm just going to save you a, bu- a blockbuster rental. It's a long time ago. At the end of the story, you realize... Bruce Willis is dead. The whole movie, he's dead. And this little kid sees him. And it's not Bruce Willis trying to help the little kid. It's the little kid trying to help Bruce Willis. Saying, dude, you got issues. I see you. But you don't rightfully see yourself. I know you're dead. You don't. See, there's a gospel twist to this story that makes this story come alive. And it's this. When we see ourselves as that certain man, and we see what life has done to us and what sin has done to us, it has robbed us, it has stripped us, it has left us more than half dead, it has left us dead in our trespasses and sin. And when the story is really told and you really understand it, guess who the Good Samaritan is? It's Jesus. And He walks a better road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He comes from heaven to earth. And why does He come? He comes to seek and to save the broken along the side of the road. And he, what does He do? He comes and he, he pours out the oil and the wine of His own blood. And He washes away our sins. And He now robes us in His own clothes. And He says, this one's mine. And He brings us to the innkeeper, the Father. He says, any debt they have, I pay. And I'll keep on paying. Because the one that was lost has been found. The one who was dead has been made alive. One who had no markings, no identity, I bring in, I adopt, and I love. You see, how in the world can we see this story and think that the point of this ultimate story is for us to try harder? For us to love more, or see better, or care more. I mean, how in the world can we think that that's the point of the story? Because that would be answering the question, the bogus question we started with. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's not it, my friends. The message of this story is not go and see better. Go and love deeper. Go and know more. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. Know where you are in the story. 
And you're that dead man with no hope of any passerby coming to love you and give you life apart from Jesus. But he's come. And he's loved. And he gives. And now we can be his. You see, when he ends the story, he says, go and do the same. He's not calling us to be moral. He's calling us to be filled with awe and filled with God's grace and mercy. And to realize, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. But by the mercy of grace of God, I've been made alive in Christ. He loves me. He died for me. He was resurrected for me. He clothes me. I am His. And now I have the privilege of loving you in His name. And now I have the privilege of showing that love to a world around me. Go and do the same. Realize where you are. Point Him to Jesus. And we will be set free. Is there an amen? Is it a good news that God's Word doesn't tell us just to go work harder? Is it an amazing grace? It's not just do a little bit better? Is it an amazing He's going to say, just know who you are and just know how much I love you and what I've done for you today? Praise our Jesus. We're going to take an offering and part of the offering is, is like the last two weeks is going to be given to the Father's house. We've had the privilege of departing with them. Part of the offering is going to go to, if you'd like to, to designate for Haiti. I just want to say that our financial secretary, Robin Cole, gave me an envelope with a little girl's name on it, a member of our church, family's a member of our church, and it's $5. It's for Haiti. I've just lived on that one. That little girl. What a privilege. Not because we want to earn his love. Because we've received the love of the ultimate good Samaritan named Jesus. And now we get to go and do the same. Let us pray. And Father God, we thank you that you didn't leave us alongside of the road in our blood. But like the prophet Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 16, you saw us lying in our blood and you said, live! And through Christ Jesus and faith in Him, we have life. And life abundantly. Jesus, we thank You that You gave us more than oil and wine. You gave us Your blood. You gave us Your life. So that all of our brokenness could be mended so that all of our stains could be washed, so that all the alienation we have from you could be bridged, and we could experience life and life abundantly, and know that there's a day coming when we'll see you face to face. Jesus, as we turn our attention now to the offertory, we are so mindful that you, Triune God, you own everything. It's not like we're trying to give you anything. We're just, we just want to respond. Because you say you love a cheerful giver. God, anything we have, the things that we give and the things that we keep are all yours. Father, I pray for anyone here today who might be like that certain lawyer 
They may have some knowledge, but they don't have understanding. Father, they may have some love, but it doesn't have any action. They may see, but it doesn't have any compassion. Father, may they understand the gospel story of what Jesus has done. And instead of putting something in the plate, may today be the day where they put their lives in the nail-pierced hands of Jesus and find life and life abundantly. For the rest of us that are yours, Father, may we now go in Jesus' name and love like he loved us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.